Hi, everybody. Welcome to the Tableau on Tableau podcast with Wilson Poe and Charles Schaefer. I'm Charles Schaefer. And since this is the first episode we're distributing on the web, I thought it might be a good idea to provide a quick introduction. Wilson and I are employees of Tableau Software, and every week we get together and talk about Tableau stuff. We're very passionate about data. Uh, We're excited about the ways people can use this information at their fingertips to understand the world around them. And this leads to a lot of philosophical conversations about topics surrounding the world of data. We mostly think about it in terms of how businesses work with data, since our jobs are to be technical consultants and advisors to companies. A quick disclaimer, though, we aren't speaking for Tableau in any of these discussions. We aren't authorized to make competitive statements or speak about how Tableau is doing on the stock market, anything like that. We'll also refrain from mentioning our clients by name. Basically, this is just an informal conversation. So thanks for listening and enjoy the show. The largest stadium in the world is in North Korea, mm. and it has a capacity of 150,000. Seem like, well, it seems like a luxury item. Um, Just gonna throw that out there. And it was built purely to outdo South Korea's Seoul Olympic Stadium, which has a 70,000 capacity. I can see that. Very That's your fun fact of the day. Very specific. Uh, yeah, I don't know how fun it is, but it's stadium news. In the world of stadium news, Charles has provided us all with a little bit more trivia knowledge. I just, you know, related somewhat tangentially to football because it's played in stadiums, mm. usually. Um, Segway. Uh, I saw a tweet today <laughs> saying... Uh, Capitol Hill is much better on a Segway. Someone in Seattle. Somebody said... Enjoyed Capitol Hill, the neighborhood in Seattle, better when riding a Segway than when walking. So I'm, I'm trying to understand what led to the article to begin with. Was it the author? It was a tweet. It wasn't an article. It was oh, okay. someone, I, the only reason I saw it is because I follow... Segway news. This dude called Jay Seattle, who is a, he's the guy that writes the Capitol Hill blog. Mm, Okay. And he retweets, anytime someone puts Capitol Hill in a tweet, Mm -hmm. he retweets them. Generally good things, right? I mean, I would imagine he is not a big fan of like. No, he, he, I mean, if someone says something negative, he retweets it as well. Okay. Just anything that mentions. A a very. um, I mean, his. Articles that he writes are generally positive, I think, or mm-hmm. more more focused on kind of just what's new in that neighborhood. But there's a lot of people that just tweet like, "I'll read you some." Why has Cap Hill gotten so ghetto? Question mark exclamation point. Mm-hmm. Cap Hill is fun, but it's got nothing on Pullman. That's... Re- real tweet by a guy. Okay. Um, Not sure if. That sounds like sarcasm. It's it could probably be. not. It could be. Um, so, 
those are things that he has broadcast to the world that maybe don't necessarily need to be broadcast mm. to the world. So segues. Um, mm-hmm. um, have, so have you seen the new, um, what was it called? It's like a segue without a handle. Yeah, the, the thing. Is it called a hoverboard? Well, somebody tried to put something called a hoverboard out there, which was more of Segway. It's just a Segway with no handle. Right. Yeah, it's just and I think Segway is suing them for multiple infractions of patents right now. That was last I read. Yeah, what is, but what is it called? I don't know. Anyway, um, yeah, so it's, it's just, it's, I think it's called like a Speedway or something dumb. Um, but yeah, they're calling it a hoverboard, but it's really just a Segway with no yeah. handle. I mean, a hoverboard is what I imagine from uh, Back to the Future 2. And I've heard, I don't know if this is a hoax or not, but Lexus apparently has created an actual hoverboard. Why is this technology not available to the public? It is, it's just very expensive. Mm. Um, It is real. Um, It is called Slide. And it floats a few inches above the ground. And you kick it like by swiping your right foot to the side of the board like in a... The, and, does it have to only work in a rink? Like a specific... Because I've, I've heard of that before where they like established the right like um, environment for these things to kind of work in. But Well, the reason I think it is real and actually behaves as advertised and built is that when you watch the videos, everyone's really terrible at it. Okay. <laughs> so, like, I feel like if it was a hoax, they'd they'd make it look like people could actually do like fly and... tricks and, and stuff. Um, but it looks it looks fairly real, um, and it looks like they're just using it at a skate park. Regular skate park. Yeah, just search for Lexus hoverboard. Interesting. Um, anyway, uh, speaking of technology, uh, technology that, uh, is advanced to the point that maybe people don't believe that it is a real thing. Uh, let's talk about Tableau. Christ. Your segues are getting worse. (laughs) (laughs) Um, because there's a lot of times where I go to customers and I talk about Tableau and they don't really believe it is as easy and intuitive and, and, and beautiful and useful as, as we uh, describe it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, when I was in a meeting on Monday, um, I was at this company all day and there was kind of four different meetings and some of them were with business people and some were with the executive team. The last meeting of the day was with a technologist. His name was Craig. And he came into the meeting and said, I just want to make sure you haven't told our business people that the way you connect data is like pixie dust. And we were like, what do you mean, Craig? And he was like, it's just never as easy as you say it is. And Craig, and I, Craig seems a little curmudgeon. He was definitely a curmudgeon. Okay. He, was, he was easily a curmudgeon. Uh, and his, his, he was coming in because he's done this before, right? He's done BI a bunch of times and it's never as easy as the the vendor comes in and says and so we had a conversation it was productive i mean we talked about um 
you know, what type of effort was going to be required to get their data into place and, uh, and, and what they were going to have to do and, and um, whether or not it was uh, worth their time at all. Mm-hmm. And he came into the meeting, I think, very kind of with the tendency to kind of push back and say, you know, maybe it's not the best decision. Um, and I think we softened him up a little bit just by kind of talking through and, and taking it seriously and not saying, yeah, it's going to be easy. You're going to have to put in some effort to kind of get this, get the right kind of infrastructure in place. Um, but, but it's worth doing and you shouldn't not do it just because it's hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and we talked about some of kind of the, the details of that, but um, just seemed, seemed relevant because of the discussion you and I were having earlier about sort of the, the Tableau infrastructure. Right. Um, you know, I, I think we've been trying for a while to kind of put a framework around uh, what is required for you to get a successful Tableau deployment. Yeah. And, and you know, for the last two weeks, I, I've been at the different Tableau offices uh, over in Seattle and then over in Austin last week. Um, it's funny how sort of that, that same conversation comes up over and over again. Um, whenever we... Well, whenever we get into a group and start talking about what we actually do well, for a mm-hmm. living, right? Um, um, so, in in a lot of ways, I think the the conversation that you probably had with Craig is something that we need to actually entertain a whole lot more of. In other ways, of course, I think you know sometimes it does feel a little pixie dust um, in the way that we talk about how Tableau works, how it gets deployed, um, and ultimately, sort of what we are uh, as a company that's there. I ended up drinking with uh, a couple of folks uh, one night over in Austin and uh, I I raised a question uh, specifically about what we did. Um, Were we more of a company that was more about, well, the software we sold that enabled business intelligence or did we really view ourselves as a company that was a part of that business intelligence story that was really ultimately going to be driving how people would work with data. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't loaded in one way or another, but I always like to get that check every so often. We bring in a lot of folks, I think, uh, with our hiring throughout the years. And it's an interesting conversation just to see where people are at, um, what their beliefs really are. And of course, likewise, that will inform me about basically what they're uh, going to actually do, right? In the, in the company that's there. And it was actually pretty unanimous across the board that we really felt that there was a, a role, a, a duty, um, a responsibility to play a much bigger role in that, that data story that's there, right? Mm-hmm. And provide some leadership. And so I guess this might be sort of a good time. We keep on sort of harking around the idea a bit, uh, but it might be a good time for us to actually dive into it a little bit more. You know, what actually takes place for a company to adopt Tableau successfully. And then with that, of course, what is required of that environment to actually make that deployment, uh, you know, grow into the way that we actually describe it to. I, I think that, you know, sometimes we, we think of that a little bit more organically than we expect it to, but mm-hmm. in reality, I think there are some environmental things that, um, you know, folks can do to really maximize that deployment. Yeah, you know, I think um, there's a, I think the way we perceive ourselves is a little different from how businesses perceive us mm-hmm. uh, as a company. I think we perceive ourselves as, like you said, uh, kind of a data advisor. Mm-hmm. Um, there's 
the the way people that buy Tableau kind of I think mostly consider it's just a software vendor and they, they've read about the software and they know about maybe some of the different things we do compared to other pieces of software but um, they're thinking about you know just taking uh, an application and installing it and, and I think we the way we've always kind of approached those customers is from the perspective of someone that actually has a valuable philosophy and the philosophy is largely built into the software but it doesn't change the fact that we're bringing a set of advice and best practices to them. Um, but I think something we haven't done very well historically is actually give them concrete instructions yeah. around how to deploy Tableau, how to actually take that philosophy and put it into place in a way that will make them successful. Um, I mean, what do, when you had these conversations with people... Um, in, in some of the offices, did you get the, the sense that that was their philosophy or did you, did, were there different degrees of expertise there? What, what, what was your take on kind of the way we think about it as a company? There's definitely different takes to it, different pieces that people really focus on. Uh, you know, Brian Howell, he works on the OEM team, mm -hmm. focusing a lot more on automation aspects of it. How do we actually enable the tool to work in a way that makes sense to uh, some of the business rules that might dictate around it? Um, other folks really thinking much more about the training needs that are um, required to be to really make sure people are efficient with the tool and to you know even other things that we talk about um, our own data for example um, just the, the idea of what it means to really understand our data or and communicate it effectively so I think we all tackle it from a very different angle um, but I, I think a lot of it we you know, what, what stands out to be a little bit different is that our philosophy has always kind of stood into, well, what does it take for one analyst to be successful with the tool? And we start from there and we kind of grow it out a little bit. Um, there's a lot, I think, that goes into that discussion. Um, and so it's kind of worthwhile for us to maybe even start there and okay. dive into just that larger idea of then saying, okay, well, if we can make one person successful, what then is actually required? the overall environment to really make that uh, much more common use case. Yeah, I mean, I think, it, again, historically, if you're kind of looking at what we've done successfully in the past, I think we've done a pretty good job of making individuals successful. Mm -hmm. uh, we've made a lot of training free. We've um, we've done a good job of kind of bringing uh, the way of, of analyzing data with Tableau to individuals that are interested in that sort of thing and, and kind of empowering them to do it. Uh, but we haven't really been successful at changing the philosophy of organizations and, and making them build a, an analytics culture. So I think if you want to put a title on this talk, I, mean, I think we can call it what we might say. These are the three steps to a Tableau deployment. These are the mm -hmm. three things that you need to have in place. And you can't have a real successful imp implementation without these things. Right. Um, they don't necessarily come simultaneously. There's not necessarily a distinct order. Mm -hmm. It's just, these are three kind of elements of data analysis and just a, a culture of data that's important to be able to, to do this. Uh, especially when you're considering the unique properties of Tableau as a company and a, and a software. Um, so we kind of broke this into um, cultural stuff, so kind of ph philosophical values and, and ideas and worldviews that need to exist. Mm -hmm. That's one. 
uh, logical sort of infrastructure type things. Mm -hmm. So um, how do you think about your data environments? And then personnel and resources, what, what you need to invest in in terms of people and what those people need to know to be able to, to actually be effective. Mm -hmm. um, let's start with sort of the cultural side, because I think that's the... Um, I think that's sort of the most central thing. I think that actually leads the other two. Yeah. Uh, if you believe that um, making decisions based on facts is important and you believe that data analysis leads to that, um, then you'll get to these other things. You'll kind of explore and find these other elements. But um, I think there there has to be certain values in place in a business to to even get to that point and that's kind of what we mean by the cultural side so first of all just what do you have to say about that i mean what do you think needs to be in place but what people what do people need to value to be able to uh put a culture of data and analysis in place right uh, you know with this I, I think we we a lot of times focus a lot on sort of the end result the insight aspect of all of this really, you know, what gains am I gonna get out of all of this? But in reality, I think what's important is really what the environment is going to allow for, right? And um, I think at the initial stages of where we've seen Tableau be successful, and of course what has been successful at Tableau is the ability for that curiosity to thrive. Um, and what I mean by that is that it's welcomed you know, you're not going to bash it down for actually investigating things that are outside the job requirement. Mm -hmm. um, and that people are inherently going to be open, open-minded, I think, to hearing uh, that the business operates not necessarily in the way that is long been thought to, right? Uh, that there could be a counter-argument involved and uh, we should open, you know, be open-minded. And accepting and investigating what that might look like. Um, at least in my mind, that is what lets the individual at least start to explore things. If they know that they're going to be reprimanded for actually, you know, doing something that's outside their job, you know, doing these these types of investigative work tends to be something that they'll they'll put aside, right? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it can't be risky, right? So I think I'm going to summarize kind of what what you're saying as there has to be uh, there has to be a curiosity an organization wide curiosity yep. about information and mm -hmm. with curiosity comes an openness to hear different ideas. Yep. Um, so um, I think the value that kind of comes to mind with that is you know giving employees a freedom to bring their own ideas and, and, and thoughts to the table, uh, not pushing down uh, a subset of ideas from management, but really saying we're open to hearing all perspectives as long as they're based on reason uh, mm -hmm. and and based on what we perceive to be facts. And we can check and assure that, that those things are true, but we have to hypothesize and, and be open to those hypotheses to actually... Uh, create a good analysis. Unless you're right. considering all possible points of view, uh, you can't be sure that you're arriving at the right conclusion. Uh, so that's one thing that you mentioned. The other thing that I thought sort of 
goes along with that is sort of a desire to improve. So um, it, it sort of goes hand in hand with sort of the, the, the curiosity element, but uh, there has to be a desire both in the management and also with all employees to find the best way to do something, to actually um, improve on processes. And once they've been improved on, look at kind of the next, the next improvement that can be made. Um, you mentioned end results being something that is typically valued when we think about BI, mm -hmm. uh, but the process and the idea of total continuous improvement where you know, you're never really at this, the optimized solution, or you, at least you should be interrogating whether you're at the optimized solution um, is important as well. It's been a while since I've heard of a TQM reference outside of a classroom setting. So TQM? TQM. What's I, that? And total quality. Is that what that is? Is that the same thing as total continuous improvement? That's all, That's what I always heard um, when I was in like operations classes in school. And stuff like that. Total quality management. Maybe they're I, probably I, it, the same it just, thing. It just hit my, my head. Um, <laughs> I remember it at least from some sort of three level, three hundred level class. If uh, I was I being a real asshole, I'd call it kaizen because that's what <laughs> Japanese people call it. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I I like. I, I think those are some of the core ideas, right? Um, you know, people need to be excited that their job can change. The people need to be excited in the sense that they can explore something and realize that there's a complete new opening that nobody has ever explored before, right? Mm -hmm. And we're not saying that I think, I, I think, you know, to the overall ideal, um, that's something that most American companies strive for mm -hmm. in some way or another. But uh, it has to be an environment that's really inviting to it, right? People who are constantly overworked, people who are typically, um, well, uh, you know, given tasks that they need to complete in a specific timely manner, um, and that's really how they, their job is defined. If the culture is basically defined in those ways, it's really limiting, of course, for, for that creativity to really thrive. And one of the big things that I typically get a kick out of whenever I'm into offices is really just that creativity that might flow out, out of any given moment, right? Somebody, some conversation will lead to some level of investigation that yeah. might lead to something completely new that, you know, somebody will spend a quarter or even more, um, you know, on the side working on. So you bring up this idea of excitement and um, that seems to be a it seems like a challenge to me is the idea that your people at a company are mm -hmm. going to want to do this, are going to be the type of, of personalities that uh, naturally want to interrogate information and, and look for those, mm -hmm. uh, those places for improvement. Um, how do you, I mean, how do you assure that that's in place? I mean, it doesn't seem like something you can control for. What, what do you, what do you think about that? I think people, Oftentimes, kind of struggle with it. Uh, I remember when I was in services, people would ask about, you know, how do I hire effectively mm -hmm. uh, into my organization? Uh, to, to that argument, I always would argue, I think everybody does have a general sense of curiosity that is involved with the business, that they want to be able to provide their insight about what's going on and to see if that matters or not, right? It, mm -hmm. It's part of their own perspective and their um their own persona as, as to how the organization really represents. Because I think a lot of times we, you know, we talk about work-life balance and all these other things, but in reality, 
most Americans do identify with the company they work with, and it's mm -hmm. a big part of their identity that's there. And so, being able to identify something that they've given to the company that's unique and special helps basically that aspect that's there. Now, that being said, I think there is a lot to be discussed around sort of the hiring aspect. A big part of it ultimately is not, uh, you know, in my mind, it's not overcapping the the skill set of, of the job itself, right? When you hire specifics, you, you end up with a very specific, you know, candidate that's in mind. Um, and, and the big problem that we see there is that, you know, people end up not necessarily being leaders because, um, well, they perceive themselves as, as just somebody who is going to get the job done, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, you bring up the idea of work-life life balance, which I'm not sure... I'm not sure how I feel about that. I, think, I know it's important. Like, I know it's obviously important to not, you know, not be overworked. It's important to be able to live your life. It's important to, if you have a family or if you have children, if you have friends that you want to spend time with, to be able to do that and not have that be infringed upon by your job. Um, but I kind of feel like people harp on that a little too much now, nowadays, for whatever reason. It's just, I think, just common in, in our current kind of conversation um, to talk about the type of work-life balance that companies provide, where I think what people really value is 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 they want to feel understood. They want to feel valued. They want to feel needed. They want to feel mm -hmm. like they're a part of something. Right. And if that means they're going to work 10 hours a day instead of eight, they'll do it if they're excited and motivated by their job. And it's not going to feel like a challenge if, if they have a job that rewards them and doesn't, doesn't make them feel like they're just a cog in a machine. I would argue, I think our generation, you know, folks who are coming out of school, as well as of course, folks who've been into the the, you know, the, the job market, I think, for the last 10 years or so. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the 50-hour work week, or even, well, at times, maybe 60-hour work week, mm -hmm. is actually a fairly normal thing in our terms, right? Yeah. Um, nobody really expects to go to work at 9, come home at 5, and not think about everything else, basically, yeah. in between. I think that's um, something that's fairly strong within um, this new breed of, of course, folks that are coming into the job market and something that is oftentimes uh, misunderstood. Um, the big thing that I do typically see is when there are folks who are, uh, you know, not identifying with their job, right? Um, that happens all the time. Uh, mm -hmm. I have a friend, of course, who's working with a big four, I won't say his name or the company, but he's working with a big four. But, you know, to, to him, there are specific client needs and specifics that's there. But because uh, his passion is in golf. He's going to do golf a lot more. But of course, mm -hmm. the, the company that is successful in recognizing passions that people really have, as well as, of course, um, really, well, uh, adhering to and letting people kind of thrive in their own creativity within their own time, uh, it, it works well, right? People are more than willing to work 50-hour uh, weeks if they can dedicate 15 hours of that 50-hour uh, week into, into their own uh and do their own projects, their own work. That's yeah, there. and I, I think we, we have to kind of cage this a little bit on in the fact that we're both a little <laughs> younger and like I think just it's it comes naturally that when as you get older and as you start to like pursue other things like having a family, you probably don't have the same philosophy. So we're right. probably a little bit more aggressive on the idea of working more um, just because that's a bigger portion of our lives than some people's. But I think 
um, I think companies have to find a way to like accept the contribution both from the guy that wants to work 35 hours or 30 hours and just like he's he's effective and he's good at his job but he just has other things he values like right. you can't not hire that guy no. if he's a good worker but you also have to allow the guy that wants to work 55 hours and really bust his ass to do that uh, if he wants to make that contribution and not value not value one more than another just right. make sure that they're both contributing to the role that they've been hired to do. Um, and some people can get more done in less time. And some people, um, you know, there's lots of different kind of variables in place there that comes in. I, I think it, it all ends up being encompassed in what you said, which is kind of hiring. It's right. making sure that you're looking for the skills and also the, the types of people that kind of fit into that culture of curiosity and desire to improve. Right. So, I mean, we could talk about hiring for probably a whole other, like, three, four sessions yeah. of this. Here's but... my, uh, my favorite line that I'll just say is, is the Jeff Mills <laughs> line, right? Uh, you don't have a software problem, you have a hiring problem, Ooh. which I love. And he says in response to lots of questions, I mean, when he was in sales, he would say that in response to lots of questions around security and various, you know, various elements. I love it because it doesn't really mean anything, uh, but it's also like a really good kind of... Uh, controversial statement that makes you rethink how you're thinking about something and when you're when you're kind of deciding on this cultural element of right. data analysis which which i think is very important to something like tableau then you do need to make sure that's clear you need to make sure that you're saying you're not going to be successful with this unless you have people that want to understand the information that you contain yeah. your business I, I, th I think a core aspect of that is that ownership aspect right um so you know in speaking of well any type of folks who are working with the company um whether they are the folks who are very focused on what their job role is dictating or somebody who is focused on the larger picture that's there it is ultimately that ownership and that ability to take ownership mm -hmm. um to that role that's there but I think, yeah, that's the, um, from a cultural perspective, you know, it is really that, that creativity, you know, mm -hmm. how do we make it thrive? How do we actually, uh, let those individuals who are a little bit more curious, uh, to explore that curiosity. So what are, uh, what are some of the challenges with this? So we, we're talking about, as you brought up at the beginning, the ways to take this from, uh, empowering a single person, mm -hmm. right? Which I think it's pretty easy to empower a single person with a copy of Tableau software, right. Tableau desktop, whatever. Mm -hmm. um, scaling that from one to many people, putting, making it a cultural thing, making it a business-wide thing. Um, again, the reason you want to do that is because you don't know where insights are going to come from, right? That's, that's so, the general kind of philosophy behind it. Yeah, so, so I mean, definitely elaborate on that point because I yeah. think it's, it's lost a lot, right? You know, mm -hmm. how, how many times have we heard of a deployment where folks are focused on, mm -hmm. well, I have three people who know how to work with data, so mm -hmm. I will give Tableau desktop yeah. to three people. Yeah. Um, what, what ends up happening with data, I, I think just the thing you have to realize when you're doing a project or giving, giving people the ability or, or, or uh, access to analyze data is you're looking for needles and haystacks. You're looking for interesting tidbits that exist in this great uh, 
breadth of information and uh, you don't know where those things are. And you might have some ideas of where to focus your time and sometimes those ideas kind of focus your efforts, but um, you don't actually know where insights are going to come from. Um, and the probability of success in finding something that you're going to do either to save money or increase your revenue or profit or something, um, the probability is going to go up if you have more, uh, more ways of looking at that, more people looking at it, more types of analysis, etc. Um, and that's, uh, that's a really important just philosophical admission to make. Uh, you, you need eyes on things and it's not going to, you need eyes on data and it's, mm -hmm. it's not going to make things more efficient to have fewer people looking right. at it. Um, what I think ends up happening a lot with, uh, with businesses that, that kind of start data, uh, projects is they, is they make it into that kind of project, mm -hmm. uh, effort and they draw a lot of boxes around it, which limits the number of people and the number of insights and the areas that they're actually going to investigate to the point that they're not giving themselves the best chance of success. Right. I think that's probably one of the biggest barriers that we see from a scaling up perspective, right? Like when folks are thinking about ROI, they're so focused on basically what that number looks like mm -hmm. that they oftentimes basically are so cost conscious when, yeah. with basically the whole project that's there. Um, we hear this all the time where it's like there's people who don't have the skill sets to, to use business intelligence. And then there's folks who are, uh, they're too important to actually uh, do the data work that's yep. there. And the reality, of course, is that if, and, and this is the long-term goal for all of this, right? If BI is successful, it is a tool that is as simple to use as your mobile phone, as your toaster in the morning, mm -hmm. Not sure that microwave, uh, that popcorn button on your microwave. Yeah. And so, in that sense, right, um, the conversation is around data and not about, of course, the insights that are derived from a team that has the ability to work with data that's there. And I think that's a big barrier for us to actually just cross as as a whole. People who work with data provide insights that they can generally back, that they can provide hypothesis and testing and, and experimentation. And that adds a lot of value to just the conversation itself. And of course, with that, yeah, you're not necessarily gonna get more insights, but uh, long-term, from a probability perspective, there is a, a greater goal around basically all of that. Yeah, and the, I think the logic behind not empowering more people isn't, we want to limit our probability of success. It's the assumption that you don't have a chance of actually getting insight if you don't have good enough skill, right? right? You don't have technical skills or you don't have the background or something. Mm -hmm. And so I think just if, if you were going to summarize like the Tableau mm -hmm. effort uh, in, in a single sentence, it would be to eliminate the technical barriers that mm -hmm. uh, limit people from being able to analyze information. Right. Um, because once you take away those technical barriers, everyone has a different perspective that gives them a slightly different possibility and, and pathway to understanding the information they're looking at. And that's going to give you lots of different chances to find something. Um, so scaling, if we kind of move along with the assumption that it's important to scale, right. um, what are some challenges with that? What are, what are some potential pitfalls 
when you expose analysis to more and more people? Um, yeah, so this is an interesting question where we, we typically have to take the side of, well, folks that we, we talk with, understanding, of course, some of their concerns that are out on the table. And I think a big concern that's on the table is, well, what happens if information is wrong? Um, if we provide the wrong insight, then business intelligence is just misinformation. Mm -hmm. And uh, that destroys credibility, that destroys uh, reputations. Um, okay. And you know what, uh, you know, from a BI, just a, a theory standpoint, right, that is the one thing that is taboo that we want to basically uh, avoid within the whole mix. Um, so that, that's definitely one of the areas that we start to see. Uh, the other area, of course, is really just the, the method of it, right? You know, you, let's say we, we all agree on the idea that more people should have their hands uh, on Tableau. How does that work, right? Is it people who are sitting in each of the different offices uh, working with data independently and just trying to churn out as much success as possible? Or is it people who are very specialized in one area and focused that will maximize our opportunity in that area that's there? And so I think there is both the idea of, well, what happens if we get it wrong? And then there's the other idea of, of course, what method ends up being correct um, okay. for rollout. Yeah, I think those are good. I mean, I think the idea that um, you're thinking about kind of who's involved and what they're doing and, and kind of the the appropriate methodologies there is important as well as how do you assure that the information is correct um, I was thinking about it a little bit more from the perspective of like as you scale um, I think there are just some logistical things that can happen that cause this cultural uh, shift to not not work in the mm -hmm. way that we're envisioning so for example um, uh, knowledge not being shared through different departments in different groups right. right there there's um maybe the the potential for there being little teams where there's a data guy in each team and he's kind of managing and, and containing all the best practices and, and methods for analyzing data himself and he's not sharing what he's doing because he has no need to with that guy from a different team Right. And there might be in a big organization, 10 or 12 or 20 different organizations that are all doing this individually. And you lose some of that efficiency and possibility for increasing your probability of success as you scale because the knowledge is siloed and repeated in all these different areas. Mm -hmm. I think that's a distinct challenge. Um, the other side of that being um, if you put too many rules and you centralize too much, then you lose the capability to be flexible and actually search for insights in all these different categories. Right. It's yeah, no, I think there's there's a lot of challenges across both both of those yeah. ends of deployment, both of those tactics for deployment. Some are basically saying, well, if I seed enough, mm -hmm. something will develop from here, right? And there's always that risk of saying, okay, well. Uh, it's well you just think of it like planting if you take a, a batch of seeds and you throw it into the wind right um hopefully one will grow and that ends up being really much more about planting individual success than it is about planting a, a deployment wide success that's there and on the other hand planting everything in one central area and nourishing just that one area we get something that's fairly myopic right it doesn't have that diversity it doesn't thrive well 
either. And, and so when I, I think about basically these things, it's really about that balance that kind of comes into play mm-hmm. uh, that, that's important about deployments. Um, you are going to find success when people can spontaneously pick up and work with, uh, well, work with data uh, when they find a need to and to be able to kind of spin down some information when they, they, they aren't. Um, and I, th- I think what's important is that there is a little bit of flexibility on both ends that's there, right? You can break it apart and silo everything out, but without basically that cross-pollination, I think you're going to end up being, uh, you're going to have to relearn a lot of things independently across the board. You, you and I both basically in that ex- been in that experience where um, for us to pick up something and if we didn't share that information, going across that one barrier of understanding what, what to do in those situations would have been a lot more difficult than having somebody else to work it out or to be able to actually have talk through some of those different situational challenges. Okay. So I think that's good. I mean, I, I think that's exactly kind of what I was thinking about in terms of, you know, the risks and mm-hmm. uh, potential kind of tendencies an organization might end up going toward one or one or two of those different directions where things get too decentralized and then uh, effort needs to be replicated in all these different groups or the potential to limit kind of possibilities or, or over govern because um, because things need to be centralized. So there's kind of two ends of a spectrum, right? right? So what I would propose is, you know, maybe that, you know, we, again, we, we started this podcast by saying these are the three steps to a successful Tableau deployment. And we've kind of talked about one step so far, mm-hmm. um, which is sort of the cultural uh, foundation behind all of this. And I think the other two steps, right, right are kind of the areas that will hopefully protect you against kind of tending too much toward either of those problems. Um, So let's take a brief intermission, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Catch our breath and get another drink. And then we'll talk about those other two steps there. Um, We're going to talk about a little bit of kind of the logical side, right? From the data perspective. And then also uh, what does this mean to an organization? What resources need to be in place to allow for this? Okay. So we'll do that after our break. Lime. Lime. Lime time. All right. We are. Do you think there's a, um, you know how Deion Sanders is prime time? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think he could do a commercial for like Bud Light called Lime Time? Lime time. <laughs> that sounds like an actual ad campaign. It, it does sound like an actual Bud Light and it sounds terrible. But it's something that they would do. It would be. Uh, and he'd like come out and he'd be like, lime time. Maybe like it would be like a bunch of bros and someone would be like, bro, t- toss me a Bud Light. And like since he's a famous quarterback, so he would toss it and he'd like swat it away. He'd be like, no, it's lime time, baby. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just really like the idea of uh, them doing multiple ad campaigns to try to promote lime time. And then, of course, <laughs> it just fails, right? It's the Coke Zero, I think. Equivalent. Or, or vanilla Coke, I should probably say. Uh, that's probably less successful. Of, uh, Is Bud Light Lime still around? It's still around. Uh, I've heard people drink it, but, you know, it's... I mean, 
I, I mean, like Lime and my yeah. Pacifico, and Pacifico is not that different in flavor from Bud Light. No, no, but but you could also buy real limes and get Bud, and and you would have a a decent. You'd have drink. a choice. Yeah, you have a real drink at that point, right? Like as opposed to, uh, isn't that what Bud Light Lime is though? It's just Bud Light with some lime in it. It's yes, but it also tastes know worse. It's real lime. I'm, I'm guessing it's not right. It's artificial lime flavoring. Yeah, you know, it's the it's the lime that they put into I don't know Skittles, probably. Uh, have you ever had Bud Platinum? Uh, I have not actually. It's really bad. It's really bad. <laughs> yeah, it's, what it's what the makes only... it platinum? Is it like a metallic taste to it? It's the only beer I ever drank that I was like, man, that was terrible. Like, I've drank a lot of beers where I I'm mean, like... You, you have PBR in your fridge right yeah. now. So PBR, like, I'll drink if I'm just like, I want something that tastes like beer. Right? It just tastes like beer. It doesn't really taste like anything else. It just okay. tastes like beer. Fair, fair. And then there's other beers that I'll drink. And, like, sometimes I don't enjoy them. I'm like, that isn't really for me. But I'm like, okay, it's got, like, an interesting flavor. And I see why some people like it. Like, I don't really like drinking a lot of IPAs. But, like, they've got a lot of flavor. I'll drink yeah. one once in a while. Um, depends on my mood. Um, wait, 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 hold on, hold on. What mood <laughs> is an IPA mood? <laughs> I'm, I'm really curious now. Um, when it's angry, um, so it's like maybe it might be the frowny. Mood where I, I, I just got a list. Be like dwarfs. <laughs> is frowny a dwarf? I thought frowny was a dwarf. Grumpy. It's grumpy. Okay. It's sleepy. Um, I don't think there's a frowny dwarf. Uh -huh. um, anyway. Um, like IPA would be either like I kind of like I came in a tweed jacket mood, right? Like, hey, I want to talk about the uh, the floral notes in this um, <laughs> in this beer, like the academic. The uh, okay. Like uh, I could. Everyone else in the group is like, um, you know. So, so you're back at like the college head and a tweed yeah. jacket and a They're sweater wearing, vest. Everyone's wearing uh, like plastic, uh, thick plastic frame glasses. Yeah. And you, you don't have a book bag, but you're carrying like five textbooks on you. Or you could have like a low slung shoulder uh, satchel. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. You came on your fixed gear, right? <laughs> and you're like, <laughs> and you're like, yeah, I think I'll have that obscure IPA you have. Um, it, or it could just be like, maybe I just want something that's kind of, I, I'm, maybe it's instead of, in lieu of a, a snack, right? It's sort of, because it, it does, it almost tastes like you're drinking bread sometimes if you're drinking like It, it is. It's heavy. It's, um, uh, so like maybe, uh, you know, the, the restaurant that I'm at, the bar I'm at doesn't have like chips and salsa, but I kind of want a snack. So I'm like, okay, I'll get an IPA. It's, it'll, it's, it's okay, filling. So, so it's snacky. And academic. Yeah. Um, whereas the mood for PBR is just like, I just kind of just want a beer. And I don't really care what it tastes like. I just, just like the the compulsion of drinking the beer is more important than the beer taste. Um, and, and they're low in alcohol, so I can drink like five of them, right? And not feel drunk or anything. Whereas if I drink like two IPAs, I'll both feel full. I'll be like, my stomach will feel full and... I'll probably like feel it because they're all like pretty high in alcohol content. Mm. Um, anyway, um, <laughs> back to the main topic that's there. So I think what we last left off on so segue uh, on my part. Segue. Um, I think what we should do. 
from now on on this podcast is just say segue <laughs> instead and, then, of, and then start talking about it instead topic. of an actual segue yeah. segue segue yeah but it can't be a joke Wilson you gotta take this seriously I'm sorry segue um, segue you gotta take data analysis seriously I try every day every day I try to take it more seriously uh segue so we were talking about um the cultural philosophies behind being successful with a tableau deployment and we talked about some of the challenges some of the, the risks that that might emerge uh specifically kind of the spectrum of whether whether um you might tend more toward a siloed model uh where um too much effort is taking place because there's lots of different areas um where analysis is being done and, and knowledge isn't being shared. Mm -hmm. uh, so you're limiting your chance to find new insights because everyone's kind of doing the same thing, but they're not communicating. Versus a very centralized, restricted model where um, maybe rules have been set around best practices, but it keeps people from being allowed to do um, the types of analysis that maybe fall outside some of the molds that have been set up. Right. Um, and I think in between there, is sort of a happy medium of uh, of analysis of actual analysis that that um, that fits kind of the rigor of an organization, but doesn't restrict people too much. Mm -hmm. And um, earlier, you know, we talked about some of the ways uh, and places where um, there can be some strategy right. uh, to actually set up that model so that there's a there's a high chance of success. Um, do you want to start with kind of what those are and kind of how we think about them? Yeah, I think part of it is really dealing with, well, some of the requirements of setting up this environment. We talked, I mean, the cultural aspect is important. It's really just what allows for all this to work. But uh, there's other things that, you know, you need for, for data analysis to take place, right? Data, right? The actual, yeah, there's a logistical element. Right, the logistical element of how do we get uh, the right amount of data, of course, the uh, the correct information, of course, and that, that can be disputed, I think, and we'll probably get into that a little bit, um, to, to the hands of people who are working with it. And then the other aspect of it was really the hands of the people who will be working with it, right? Um, uh, so thinking about basically the folks who are going to be sitting behind a keyboard and, of course, the different capacities that they will actually represent in the organization, right? It's not, uh, you will not be sustainable, successful, um, continuous, I guess, um, uh, with just one person who knows Tableau desktop really, really well. Um, mm -hmm. We, I think, paint, paint that picture a whole lot, uh, but I think there are some caveats that we should, should very clearly identify from that. And this is, of course, where we move away from just what that talk of uh, individual analysis being successful and giving us ROI to a organization that can repeat that success over and over again. Yeah, I mean, so far we've sort of been ruminating on the ways to think about these things, and that's important, but now we actually have to take some action and put in the appropriate processes and, and, and things to make this possible. Right. So let's talk about that data element. Mm -hmm. um, that's kind of the most logistical of the, of the three steps that we're talking about. There has to be data, and there is data. Right. Um, you know, one of the things that I think we've found in being consultants and working with all these different businesses, you've worked both in like a service delivery side and mm -hmm. a sales side, and I've been focused mostly in the, in the sales element. But all the customers that we've worked with have data. 
And the concern isn't that they don't have any data analyzed. It's the concern is often that it's either in the right format or that it's accessible or whatever. But there's never there's never a concern to my knowledge of do we have do we have information? Does information exist that we should know more about? The, the only caveat I'll throw into that is mm -hmm. that there's always a tendency of saying do we have the right data uh, and mm -hmm. not just in the correct sense, right? It's also in the scope of of what that data contains, and sometimes yeah. it is something where we realize that there are gaps in our understanding or of course what we actually capture. But rarely do we actually find a situation where um, people have said the data that we are trying to collect that we want to grab from people um, in one way or another simply doesn't exist out there in the world, right? Yeah, so um, I, that's a great, do we have the right data is a great question and I, I wanna come back to it. Mm -hmm. um, I think we set up a little bit of a straw man argument just there saying, does data exist? Because it, it does, right? There's data, P businesses have information that they want to know more about. Right. Um, the question that I think comes up the most frequently for me is, um, can we analyze the data that we have? Mm. Um, it, like I, So like I brought up before, the, the guy Craig, Craig that I was talking to on Monday said, um, yeah, we have data. We've tried to do this before. And what we've always found is that the data isn't in the right format. It's not clean. It's not accurate. And we don't want to give people access to data that's not clean or accurate because mm -hmm. um, we're scared it's going to be wrong. Right. right? It, you it, brought that up a second ago, yeah. a few minutes ago saying, it's is it worth doing analysis if uh, there's a risk of the analyzed data giving you incorrect information? Right. So, so what, what do we typically hear with that, right? Like, yeah. okay, well, mm -hmm. um, if we are going to embark on even data discovery, it's going to be, what, six months, two years yeah. out before we actually get this correct. And yeah, it's, we, it's too early to talk about uh, visualization. The pictures are nice, but what we really need to be doing is making our data uh, clean enough to analyze. Right. Uh, is a common thing that I hear. So how do we respond to that? You know, it, it's funny when we, we think about the idea that data can one day be absolutely clean, absolutely perfect for everything that we envision. That kind of, what, what that kind of paints a picture of is that data is just something that was like flour. We process it and at some point it's something that we can take and move into everything else as opposed to the fact that, well, really that cleansing process is part of the pepper, preparation mm -hmm. of what allows for us to actually understand and, and approach that information that's there. We don't know all of our end products right now. Yeah, we don't know what we're making. I think um, I think we as humans sort of have a, a tendency to wish that we could kind of put certain fundamental infrastructure elements in the past, uh -huh. right? Like I was thinking about this recently when I bought my new couch. I was like, well, I got to buy the couch before I put all the other stuff in the living room that I want, before mm -hmm. I paint the wall, before I get the art, before I, you know, whatever, before I uh, get a TV or, or a chair or whatever. Mm -hmm. At least I have that couch taken care of. That element's done. I can put that in the past and now I can move on to the other stuff. Um, I think that's sort of a fallacy to think that one element can come before another because... Uh, Except in very rare circumstances, things um, depreciate and things break and um, 
and and things complement each other. And uh, it's very rare that there are places where there's really an order and specific set of um, processes that have to be in place before another thing, et cetera. Um, and I think that analogy kind of applies to this data space where people assume, well, we can't analyze our data until all of it is clean, right? Um, and that would be true if you were gonna analyze all of your data at once, mm -hmm. every time you analyzed it. But what is actually the case in, in, in reality is that people are just looking for snippets to analyze so they can get those insights. Right. Uh, they're looking for subject-oriented areas to, to, to investigate. You're smiling, so I feel like you have a joke to tell. No, I mean, I'm just finding that whole couch analogy to be really something reminiscent of, like, out, something out of Fight Club. I can probably dig up oh, that yeah, quote actually, out I think of that is a scene <laughs> from Fight Club. I wasn't thinking of that when I said it, but you're right. That's, but, pro that's probably subconsciously where I got it. <laughs> But I, I think that's right. I mean, when we think about sort of the whole idea of data being any different than how we actually make, uh, deal with manufacturing for that matter, right? Mm -hmm. You don't build all of your seats first before you ultimately build your cars. Mm -hmm. uh, you build things in order, you figure out basically what needs to improve and what's changing so that ultimately all of these things are interchangeable and then we can adjust things on the fly. If we are going to decide to build more SUVs later on, we're going to adjust basically our assembly process in order to uh, support that. And the whole idea then is we are not building basically a finalized product for here on out. We're building basically a sustainable uh, production chain in order to really make this work out. Um, and, and data is basically one of those raw ingredients where we can't... Uh, well, we can't predict where it's going to go. And, and a big part of that ultimately is being able to trust our people to be able to caveat what they, they find in the right ways, as well as, of course, making sure that we have the checks and measures so that those insights don't run astray, right? Yeah, so in, in practice, you know, I think uh, when, when someone says, we need to get all our data clean before we start analyzing it. Um, I think a fair question is, okay, how do you know what you have to clean? How do you know what you have to do? How do you know what data you have to gather? What better way to figure that out than start asking questions, mm -hmm. right? Start analyzing the data and trying to understand what's there and, you know, put the appropriate safeguards in place so that you're not making decisions against the wrong information, but start querying it and answering those questions and then make sure those questions are, are make sure the answers are accurate. And what better way to, to find out what you actually need to clean up? Uh, you know, otherwise, um, otherwise it's, it's going to be all rumination and, and, and kind of delay until you have this sort of mythical kind of clean data warehouse that doesn't actually exist. And it's, um, I mean, I, I think a good way to think about that is just, it's a math problem, right? There, there's more data coming in and it's, it's only going to accelerate in the way that our world works is, is there's, there's more and more inputs for data being invented every day. Um, the rate that we're innovating in terms of how to understand the data isn't advancing as fast as data sources are being advanced and, and proliferated. So just that simple fact indicates that a 
data warehouse that has everything cleaned is never going to exist. Um, at least not in the next, right. not, not in a foreseeable future, not in a time frame that you can uh, fairly delay understanding the data. And why are you collecting the data unless you're actually going to derive some sort of insight from it? Um, so um, I think that's, that's a really important point to understand. So what, what ends up happening in practice is that um, companies can start investigating the data that they do have. Mm -hmm. And what, that, what actually happens is they understand a lot faster what they need to do. Mm -hmm. uh, they say, well, this field isn't there. Well, mm -hmm. I was trying to ask questions of the data and I, I realized that this category that I really needed wasn't there. So we need to find a way to bring that in. Or uh, I did this insight. I found this insight and I, I found this number that was really interesting. And then my boss said, well, that's not correct. Right. So then we figured out we needed to go back and edit the data and make sure that we we're collecting the data in the correct, the right way. And that comes back to the question you brought up earlier, which is, do we have the right data? Mm -hmm. And you know, to that point, it's one of those things where we find that as we actually start to evolve this process, data itself actually gets simpler, um, mm -hmm. uh, or the way that we interpret it gets simpler. A lot of times, I think I come from a finance background. We rely heavily on sort of the mathematical formulas and analytics that that are generated off of other calculation in order to to represent what's really going on. Mm -hmm. We're actually getting into a world right now that's really exciting that well, what we want to capture ultimately, what that question was, we could probably capture it. Yep. There's probably some source or some method uh, that's already in place that already is capturing that data source and it's really bringing in our information um, appropriately. And so the fun thing here right now is that when we start to kind of ask the right questions in mind, it leads to the right ideas of how do we actually source our data from the right place? And what might be important moving forward for us to continue as a process as opposed to stopping as a process, right? So you're refining not only really, well, the data and data collection and refinement and ETL process in between, mm -hmm. you are refining the sources that you are gathering information. And with that also, of course, you're mitigating a lot of issues that come into just bringing right. too much data into your environment. Yeah, what ends up evolving is this sort of cycle where mm -hmm. people begin to analyze, begin doing analysis, identify what data exists uh, through asking the resources that provide them data or through going and accessing the information that, that they have access to and then discovering the limitations of that and asking questions, but then also you know, garnering the need for more data and, and more accurate data. And those things really go hand in hand to the point that there are people that are asking questions of data and there are people that are providing data. Right. And neither can really exist without the other because the providers can't really make sure they're doing the right uh, provision of data without feedback from the people that are analyzing it. And the people that are analyzing data can't analyze correctly unless they're being provided data. So it has to be a cycle rather than an order uh, where one happens before the other. Um, let's see. I, we had a couple of notes on this. I just want to look so through. So there's always the argument of, of course, what, what happens wrong, right? Mm -hmm. Well, what happens when everything about that continuous cycle breaks down, little hitch in the, in the cycle that, you know, all of a sudden a bad decision gets made. 
bad information gets out. Yeah. And the idea that this, well, is a, is a moving train is, is scary for, I think, a lot of folks. Um, and I think it's rightfully so. I mean, right? Um, the idea that we are trying to innovate on things that we completely don't know and have no way of prototyping. Yeah. Um, I mean, what, what's, what's your general thoughts around that, about basically misinformation being portrayed as information? Yeah, I mean, it's obviously a concern and there's some fear of, there's some fear associated with it, which I think makes it feel scarier. Um, mm -hmm. I, there's a couple of things. So first of all, um, people are afraid of, of failing, I think, which, which is completely understandable that, that being wrong is, is considered a failure, mm -hmm. right? And that if I'm wrong, I will have failed at this and I'm going to get in trouble or I'm going to get fired or whatever. I think that's something that kind of ties back to that cultural part, which is part of the culture of curiosity and desire to improve has to accept and embrace failure. It has to say, we're going to be wrong sometimes. Uh, we'll probably be right more often if we base our decisions on facts than if we don't. Mm -hmm. uh, but we're going to be wrong sometimes. And sometimes it's going to be because we collected the wrong data. But if we don't try to report off it, we're not actually going to know where we're wrong. Right. So it's not really making it that we're wrong less if we do this analysis process. It's just going to mean we don't know where we're wrong. Right. Um, I think there's there's another element of that, which I was thinking, and then I kind of lost my train of thought. Um, but I think it's um, it's kind of about the idea that um, you have to you you can't just assume that every time you're going to do analysis, it's you're acting on it in a way that's going to change your entire company, right? And analysis. Um, when when done right, can go through the appropriate stages so that uh, an insight or a decision can be evaluated and made sure that it's right. So you, you can you can apply governance and, and, and rigor to these sorts of insights in a way that that safeguards against being wrong affecting the entire business. Right, and, and I really like that word rigor, where mm -hmm. it's less about the process that we're putting in place or uh, something bureaucratic mm -hmm. in nature. Uh, about basically making sure that the thing that gets out is politically correct or of course whatever mm. um, it's the it's the rigor that, that goes behind how people should be looking at the numbers that's there if somebody's looking at information and it's clearly not gone through the scientific rigor that it deserves mm -hmm. uh, people won't take it seriously yeah. right well if, we we often propose sorry to interrupt it's, we, we often propose customers uh, allowing everyone to do analysis and, and share that analysis with others, but then also uh, apply uh, some just general logical checks to it before it gets proliferated at right. an organization or a production-wide level. Right. Right. But, but more importantly, I think that rigor is about the forum that people can have about data, right? You keep everybody in the dark, you don't have a forum, you don't have rigor mm -hmm. um, in your process, right? If I were to tell you that... Uh, the moon and the sun was exactly the same object in the sky, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, without the right level of information and a completely uninformed child that I might be talking to, maybe that's true. I've never um, seen them together. It's yeah. like Batman and Bruce Wayne. Yeah, it's the same thing. It's a superhero form of, you know. Mm -hmm. 
But the the idea there is you can't have that next level conversation. You can't have basically people checking themselves until you basically set up the right form that's there. And part of that is the cultural aspect of it, but part of it I think is this idea of just making data of course available mm -hmm. so that people can actually have counter arguments and to really have this idea that's there. Um, yeah, it's it's the um, it's the same thing as we were saying earlier in kind of the, the cultural section where we're saying uh, people can't be afraid to share opinions. People yeah. have to feel like um, as, as long as they have informed opinions that they're not shut down. Um, decisions made on data have to be welcome in an organization, even if they could potentially be wrong. And it's just about getting facts into the conversation. Right. You know, it's, it's not about uh, overriding other methods for decision making. You know, um, there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of um, talk about kind of statistics versus experience, right? In the world where, um, some people, I think, think of metrics and analysis as sort of a replacement for I've been doing this for 20 years and I know how the world works and I'm going to use my gut feeling that's based on that experience to make those decisions. And it's not about replacing those things or saying that those opinions aren't valuable. It's just getting this other method, this analytical method into the conversation. Uh, and in fact, it's best when it's coupled, uh, yeah. when people that have industry and world experience can look at the facts and say, okay, I know that this is true and I can confirm that because I've seen it or, or this is different than I expected. So we should investigate it more. Um, and it, I just think that's a really important part of this, this whole puzzle is, yeah. um, is, is the conversational element. Of well, it. It, you know, the whole idea is, I think part of it is science is motivated by the hunches that mm -hmm. we have, right? It's the scientists who are willing to think about, well, the, the world might work a little bit differently and be able to actually then, well, prove it, right? And of course, if they pr disprove their own hypothesis, it's perfectly fine. It is still adding to our overall knowledge about what's going on. So let's talk about the scientists yeah. that are involved. Um, yeah. So, I mean, that's the last piece that I thought was important before I lost my train of thought. So I'll just say it now. <laughs> Most discoveries, or not most, but many discoveries that have been made have been made without a clear objective in mind, mm -hmm. right? Um, it's just that there was work being done and that allowed them to see something right. that they wouldn't have seen otherwise. Um, so that, that's the only thing I wanted to add to that. But yeah, the, the scientists are the resources that are involved in this. Like, who, who is that? Who are these people? Uh, to, to quote Jerry Seinfeld. Uh, <laughs> can, can you say a little bit more? <laughs> no, no, I can't. Uh, I'm not a very good Jerry Seinfeld impressionist. Um, but he, he does say that. Um, who are these people? Yeah, I can't do that it. That was rude. <laughs> I don't have the right accent to do the Jerry Seinfeld thing. But um, who needs to be involved in this? Right? Um, it, it's... It's something that we touched on. We were talking about hiring. Um, but I think specifically, this is kind of the third element of this whole model, which is who needs to be involved to make this successful? Uh, if we have the right culture in place mm -hmm. and we have the right data environments in right. place, uh, what can the people that are operating this model do to make sure we're successful? What skills do they need? 
uh, what roles do they have? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the the first place you have to start in any model uh, that discusses this mm-hmm. is the split between technology and the business. Yep. I mean, whether or not that's relevant to the way you do analysis, um, it's the way businesses are structured. Right. So we have to talk about what technology is responsible for and what business people are responsible for. Right. Um, so the the notes I have here that I kind of jotted down as we were talking, um, in a Tableau world, and in a Tableau project, I think it's a little maybe different from how it's been historically where um, all of the work was done by technology and then the business kind of took the work and made decisions based of it. We're putting a little bit more of the effort and again, that conversation into the business people's uh, realm. Mm -hmm. Um, They're not just asking questions, they're actually trying to answer the questions and technology is more supporting and empowering those people. So what I've written down here is the technical people are preparing data Mm-hmm. Right, they're supporting the technology. Right, um, they have they are committing to um, SLAs or some sort of agreement around how the technology is going to work. Okay. But they're not necessarily responsible for doing the analysis. Right. Um, and I think that's the sort of sea change in how Tableau approaches things, um, where um, again if you can take away the technical requirement for asking questions, um, you give more opportunities for actually getting insight. Right. So, I mean, you know, if there's, if we had to list out archetypes, I I actually kind of see four different archetypes really developing. They're not that much different than I think traditional BI to be quite honest, but I think the roles that they play specifically in each of their roles are going to be fairly different. And, and, it's really about the goals and where they orient themselves. Mm-hmm. The first idea is really around sort of the data itself, right? Like you said, um, and, and like you know, what most of the conversation has kind of alluded to is data needs to be unbiased. Uh, it is the starting point that allows for us to say, okay, well, if this is the truth, then what can we derive from that mix that's there? And mm-hmm. of course, it's data preparation that kind of comes into mind. It is a lot about basically just uh, representing data and pulling in sources so that they can be represented correctly, that we know the caveats that exist between there, that's uh, between data sets, right? Uh, whether it's just how frequently we pull in that, those data sets, or of course, the accuracy of the source that we're actually sourcing that information from. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you can imagine, of course, pulling information in from like Salesforce versus a you know Facebook page is going to be dramatically different, right? Yep. We have to, of course, balance that type of information out. Um, there's the forum itself. We talked about sort of this idea that the forum is so important for us to actually have a scientific argument to to be its own check in the situation that's there, mm-hmm. and so the forum has to be sustained. Right. If it goes dark at any given point, we go back to the dark ages. Uh, if it's not carried out correctly, um, it's biased towards one voice that's there. And what we want to make sure is that it is the clear Senate floor for how discussions can be argued and can be pointed out, um, regardless of where those sources come from. Okay. So you brought up... Um these four different elements. Mm-hmm. Can you can you outline those? Sure. I mean, you said I, I got the impression you were talking about kind of the people that are involved with the data, 
and then more of the, the kind of structure, the infrastructure right, yeah. and form elements. But what are those four different things? I guess the other two that I would actually say is, you know, there are folks who actually are doing more of the scientific work, right? Who are actually looking through the data and figuring out what's actually there. Um, mm-hmm. And in that sense, this is a little bit more blurred because, the, you know, folks we've seen carry multiple roles. But this is an archetype I think that's important about somebody who fully understands the business who's been working with business in some capacity. Mm-hmm. So they understand basically when this information might be even placed into the system uh, that's collected in the first place. What biases actually exist to begin with that's there. Mm-hmm. So I see this almost as like a four-way Venn diagram yep. where um, there's maybe one of, the, one of the elements is data, one of the elements is the conversation or the forum, as you mentioned. Right. One of the elements is the science of the data. Mm-hmm. And then the other might be the business or the kind of executive side that's that's the decision-making side. The yeah, last one, I, t- I would argue, yeah, is, is that decision-making side, right? Mm-hmm. The advocate, right? I, I think there's, there's an idea where there's folks who are studying what's going on, yeah. but ultimately to collect the idea together to actually advocate it out, mm-hmm. as well as to take the feedback, right? If, if they've... You know, if the argument does not stand, they need to be able, very comfortable, to actually be able to bring it back. And I would argue that those archetypes exist, in some cases, all within one person. Uh, yeah. But a successful deployment has to exist. You know, we have to find those archetypes. Yeah, there are there are specialists that, if you're thinking about, just I'm thinking about it, visualizing it in sort of the Venn diagram model where there's overlap. Right. There are specialists that just exist in one of those areas each, and then there are people that maybe have a a little bit of translation where they know one and another mm-hmm. and then there's some people that know three or four of those items right. and actually all are necessary because you need both the specialists that are focusing on one of those elements but you also need people that know how to speak to each one right. to be able to translate it from one area to another and actually get the best decisions made right. so it's there's some overlap it could also be seen almost as a process where there's data and then there's maybe the science around the data and then the conversation and the decisions, but I don't think it actually works that way. I think it's more of a consistent kind of cycle where all of those elements are being addressed at once. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I think where we see success is when, you know, for, for example, really the, the folks who are looking at the data is able to communicate with, uh, you know, folks who are actually doing the analysis work that's there when the analysis work is, also, of course, feeding into that overall conversation that the advocate might actually play. There's, there's all of this is actually consistent. And when we think about this in a, what's often thought of as a, a waterfall development cycle, yeah, it really fails because what you're limiting yourself to is what, uh, if your waterfall process is a month long, you have twelve insights in a year, right? And that's. Not that good, to be honest, Um, as opposed to what you're really trying to do is basically at least continue the conversation, much like what we're doing now, right? We're we're evolving basically what the the belief really is. We're checking into what's going on and we're validating as to how accurate some of our assumptions really are. Yeah. I mean, I think the the chief benefit that we often – say that Tableau is going to provide an organization is efficiency, right? Um, and if this is the model, if the model has these elements to it, um, the efficiency comes from having all those things working in tandem, 
right? right? Like the software, again, getting back to that conversation about whether we're a software company or whether we're a data company, right? right? Um, the, the software definitely has design and, uh, and components and features that empower that, but um, it's not actually successful if you just use the software as a more efficient version of a development model that was in place uh, more traditionally. Right. right the the uh, the efficacy and the um, the reason that this is an effective and efficient way to go is that it actually the software actually empowers these four different groups to all be working in tandem um, it empowers the people who are making decisions about the data to um, to ask questions and ask for uh, updates and answers without um, having to go build that six month project around creating an entire data warehouse around something. Um, it allows scientists to include their opinions into data models that are accessed by the decision makers and also the, the group of people that are kind of part of this conversation and forum. It allows the forum to, uh, to take their insights and crowdsource uh, a lot of the decisions that are made uh, rather than purely relying on kind of the gut instinct of a, of a small group of people. Um, so I, I think that's, that's not, that's a, that's a philosophy that's not software specific. It is sort of contained within Tableau and that's, that's a lot of the philosophy behind Tableau, but it's not that you have to use Tableau to do this. It's that, um, that's that's kind of a governing philosophy behind a Tableau deployment that's it, successful. It, it's around efficiency, right? I mm -hmm. mean, part of it is I think we've found a technology that allows for us to fairly seamlessly uh, work between those four groups. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, the, the honest truth is, of course, um, you know, technology is catching up across all, all boards that's there. And what mm -hmm. we're hoping for is that BI is basically setting a standard that we are no longer going to abide by an older, more traditional development cycle. Um, and that we're really thinking about basically what is going to establish that forum for conversation as yep. opposed to uh, a one-sided conversation, right? Mm -hmm. That happens too often. Yeah, I mean, we use the word democratization a lot. and It becomes a little cliche at times, but I think that's, that's a pretty fair um, way to describe what we're yeah. looking for is a way to allow um, lots of different opinions to enter that conversation. Um, and the business still gets to discuss, gets to determine the strategy for, you know, who makes the decisions and where the opinions come from. But uh, what, what a new technology allows for is getting all those opinions in a way that, that increases your chance for insights, bringing back to that cultural methodology, making sure that you don't know where insights are going to come from. Your chances are of, su are of success and, um, and meaningful insights are increased if you give more people the power to ask questions and you can give people more power to ask questions by eliminating some of those technical barriers to asking questions. Yeah. Well, we're building a, a data republic, which sounds like a either a band name or uh, 
maybe a hoodie. Data Republic could store. be a good band. I also noticed that we have these three different, um, three different <laughs> elements of government here. There's an executive branch. There's a uh, which is maybe the um, the cultural uh, mm-hmm. side, or maybe that's maybe that's actually the forum, um, the uh, the resources side, and then mm-hmm. there's that actually might be the um, the congressional or uh, I don't I can't remember what that's called right now legislative <laughs> legislative branch, <laughs> and then there's the data side, which is maybe more of the judicial branch that's, that applies the rules mm-hmm. behind it. So we're we're um, we're somehow. Um, being super American with this podcast. I don't know how that happened. Uh, well, I mean, if we had more beer and fireworks, I think we'd be there. Um, we're drinking Mexican beer, though. It's not even like it's... Uh, it, we're almost being traders right now. Although we're both wearing football shirts, and that's pretty American. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean... I think what we need to do now, Wilson, is we need to turn on a football game. Mm-hmm. We need to... I don't know. We need to maybe like smoke some American cigarettes. Um, and like, I don't know, do we have like, uh, I'm just thinking of American spirits right now, which is, like, does not sound good. Um, I mean, can we like, what, what, what can we do? Can we like gamble? Like, I, I feel like we need to do something really American right now. Uh, um, we can go online, try to buy a pickup. Um, we could, we could, yeah, maybe uh, we should all go to Detroit right now. That's pretty American. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I don't know. I'm trying to think. Uh, we could go to a baseball game, but it's it is it's football season. Now. Yeah. We could eat a hot dog. A Coney Island hot dog. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> okay. Cool. Um, I think we I think we covered it, Wilson. I mean, I think this is good. I think this is actually a good kind of methodology for a successful tableau deployment. And I think we'll be covering it in more detail. This is right. very high level. I think we'll be digging into some of these things in more detail in the future, but I really like this idea and framework. Uh, any other thoughts? No, you're on your own guys. Go at it. All right. Let's go set up some fire.